pray and then we'll turn to Mark chapter 9. Father, we thank you that you have released our hearts. We were enslaved to sin. We, we had no joy of Jesus. We had no love of the word, Lord. But you saved us and set us free from those chains. And now, not only are we free, but our tongues are free. And we can preach your truth through singing these praises back to you, to singing these praises to one another. What a glorious time this has been this morning as we've heard the word read to us, we've sang songs, and now we're ready to feed on your truths, Lord. So prepare our hearts, Lord. Father, we'd be remiss if we did not remember those among us who could not be here. There are some that are struggling, some who are not well enough to come, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to minister to them. Cause them to draw close to you and find strength in you, Lord. Pray for our missionaries around the globe. So many have dedicated their lives to going to different people groups. All people groups that they believe will praise you around the throne someday. So we ask, Lord, that you would save people among them. Drive them into your Savior's arms. And cause our missionaries to be there, to be available Give them favor in their countries with their governments, Lord, so that they may proclaim these truths to those who are lost. And Father, we thank you for all that are here today in this building. Thank you for bringing them here. Thank you for stirring them this morning, causing them, giving them your spirit within them to bring them to church, to celebrate and praise and to be under your word, Lord. And Father, we know that you never disappoint. And so bring us through this message, give us conviction, give us exhortation, give us encouragement. And may when we walk out of here, we know you, love you, and want to serve you better than when we came in. We'll give you praise for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 37, as Robbie read, is our text this morning. As I was thinking about this text, it is certainly built around serving the Lord. There is an inner desire for man to serve himself. We'll see that in the text. We're consumed with our own greatness and we fail to see the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This week I was reminded of a great biography that I love to read of a great man in the faith. His name was George Mueller. Many of you know who he is. His testimony is fascinating. He was raised in Prussia underneath the communist rule there and they were not allowed to meet except in saints and churches. But there were still people who gathered in homes and had Bible studies and there were those who would reach out to those who were lost. And one day, George was invited in 1826 to a Bible study. And it's interesting, it was held by an old Prussian woman who opened her home for these men to come in and teach Bible studies. It was all done in secret, of course. And there, George heard the gospel. And George Mueller was captured by the Word of God. His heart was released to worship God. He had been in sin. He he had finally found a Savior that could rescue him from his troubles and his mind and all the things that had plagued him. And he was released to service. You know the story. George later moved to England. And there he began to let the gospel flush out to those who were in need. George had a passion for those who needed to be served. He set up many orphanages through the years. They've calculated some of the numbers of the known orphans that he cared for is over 10,000 orphans. That he personally saw the oversight of their care. 
He looked at them as great needs and forgotten people within the world. And his goal was not only to care for these orphans, but to give them a gospel education. He provided for an education. The papers often would write that George Mueller's children that are underneath his orphanage care often receive a greater standard of living than the British life can offer. He loved to serve those children. And those, you remember, George's extraordinary life was marked by prayer. The gospel drove his prayer life, and it drove his service. He didn't serve because he had to. He served because God had rescued him. And so he had this life of service. It is said that over 120,000 children outside of the orphanages were able to have an education that was based in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because George Mueller learned to serve the least of us. And he became a servant of all. Today's message is founded around the life of Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is working his way towards the the. towards Jerusalem, towards the death of the cross that was coming. But he has these 12 men in tow. 11 of them are going to go on to be the apostles to the church. And he knows they're not ready. They're full of pride. And he's going to give a lesson, a very clear lesson on humility that all true believers and followers of Lord Jesus Christ need to learn. So Jesus knows their hearts, and now we pick up this story as these men are moving their way back to Capernaum for one more lesson on humility. Look at the text with me and the first thought that we'll be challenged by today, the importance of the teaching of the gospel. Notice in verse 30 that from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. Well, here's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's leaving the region of Caesarea. This is where he was on the Mount of Transfiguration just a few messages ago and there where his glory was revealed and there he healed a few people and he taught there as well. But they are moving from Caesarea to Philippi and they're working their way back down to the region of Galilee for the last time he's going to pass through there. This would have been a journey of of several days. Most likely they would have followed the Jordan River um, from the north following it down south into Galilee, particularly to the town of Capernaum. You remember, Capernaum was their headquarters at the beginning of his ministry. There he assembled a lot of of his disciples. He called a lot of them. Peter was called there. John was called there. Matthew was called there. And several others were called to be his disciples here. But this ministry is done. You'll notice in this text, he has nothing to do with the masses. He is now concentrating on his followers. He's after these men. He knows his hour is coming. He knows what the Father has planned for him since the foundations of the world that he would hang on a cross and die. And he is making his way to Jerusalem. Notice that Jesus does not want anyone to know that he's in town. It's an interesting little tidbit there. Matthew, uh, the, the, the other account in Matthew chapter 17 says that they gathered together in Galilee. So he's he, it seems as though they may have broken up somewhere along outside of town in, in this little band of 13, 12, counting Jesus, and, and maybe some other followers that were with them at the point. They break up into little bands, and they slip into this town so that Jesus would not be recognized. He has a plan. And clearly, Jesus is avoiding these 
crowds. He wants to concentrate on them. He wants to prepare them. The hour's coming. And their hour is coming too when they will preach and they will present the gospel to the nations. So much responsibility is riding on these men as they are going to carry the gospel to the world. Now, he needs time with them. He needs opportunity. Notice in verse 31 what he does. He says, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Well, the little phrase he was teaching them, it is a verb that has continuation in it. So he's been teaching them all along, but here, all this walk from Caesarea to Philippi, he's in this continual conversation of teaching these men. And even saved sinners need to be challenged and, and, and to continue in our thoughts, continue in our teaching. Um, uh, one of the things you hear me use is the word, are we, are we captured by Christ? What I see in this passage is there's men there that are following Christ. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. Three of them have seen him transfigured in front of them. And yet they are still battling the fact of selfishness and pride and arguing with one another who is going to be the greatest. So Jesus is teaching them. I thought about this long this week. I thought, Lord, there's so quickly our minds slip away to self-centered things even now, maybe some of you are wrestling with what you're going to do tomorrow. Our minds just slip easily, don't they? How busy is your schedule tomorrow? Mine's full. I have lots of things going on. And so easily we slip around and we begin to be consumed by uh, the nature of our lives. And I think this little phrase there, he was teaching them, this continual teaching is such an important exercise for us. We need to be taught. We need to be under the word of God. Often we hear about people who say, well, I don't go to church anymore. I, I don't need that. I think Jesus would disagree with you. He would warn you not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together because we all need instruction. We are inherently selfish. We think about ourselves. Let me give you an example. When you woke up this morning, you thought about yourself, didn't you? I'm hungry. I've got to go to the bathroom. I've got a lot to do today. We've got to get the kids somehow to church. So we just constantly think that way, right, don't we? So we need teaching. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, just real quick brief, a great verse that we know well. Because the apostle knows that the church needs this. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul's exhorting the brethren here. Verse 1, he starts with a plea. Your Bible may even translate it. Therefore, I plead with you, or I urge you. It can even be the word translated, I beg you, Brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy accept, uh, uh, sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul's saying, I, I, I plead with you not to give yourself over to the world. Give yourself over to worldly thinking. Give yourself over to the American dream or whatever it may be. I plead with you by the mercies of God, all that God has done, that you offer your bodies, your person, to God as a sacrifice. See, that takes teaching. Did you wake up this morning and think, God, I'm here to offer my body as a living sacrifice to you? I woke up and needed to go to the restroom. <laughs> I woke up and started thinking about this message and, and all that I had to do this morning just to get to this message. 
See, we need this. We, we need to be urged. We need to be pleaded with. We need to be reminded of the mercies of God. Verse 2 is just extremely important. This is where the battle often lies, right? Do not be conformed to this world. Well, what's the world want from you? It wants you to be like them. It wants you to be just like them. And they're constantly pulling on you, constantly pushing you to be like them. But God's word says don't be conformed to this world. This is why Jesus taught them. Listen, you can see the scene, right? They're arguing on the way back down to Capernaum. Who's the greatest? Well, that sounds like a bunch of kids on the baseball field. It sounds like men and women on the job place. Who's going to climb the ladder faster? Who's the greatest? See, that's the world, right? That's the world's pull on us. What people think of us is ultimately the most important thing to us. And so Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. This metamorphosized person, this one where God has us continually at work changing us into the image of his son by renewing your mind. You know, that's what teaching does. The teaching of God's word renews your mind. I'll guarantee you there's not a Christian in here who doesn't need their mind renewed right now. We've battled with all kinds of things. The last couple of weeks, we've watched people walk into Walmarts and slaughter people. We see the attack on the family constantly, the attack on God, on marriage and family and gender. We see our children sometimes being pulled and gravitated towards the world, and, and, and yet we ourselves act worldly at times. There's not a person in this room who claims the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that doesn't need their mind renewed. We need our minds renewed. And so he is transforming us, renewing our minds. He's teaching us, and look at the reason why, so that you may prove what the will of God is. Well, there's a $100,000 question, a lot more with inflation. People ask you all the time, what's God's will for my life? To have your mind renewed. The will of God for your life is to know him. See, that's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching to these men their natural bent is to think of themselves. Our natural bent is to think of ourselves. And so he's teaching them. He's reminding them of these great truths. I'm going to die. They are going to kill me. I will be put in a grave, but I will beat death and rise. He's reminding them of the greatest truth they can ever hear. And you and I need that. We need to hear that lesson. Notice that so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Isn't that beautiful? You can actually chase something that is good, perfect, and acceptable to God. Where else do you do that? Most of the things in the world that you would chase are not perfect. And some of them are certainly not good. And most are not acceptable to God. But when we pursue him and put ourselves under teaching, under the word of God, whether that's sitting in the morning or in your truck at noon or wherever it is, with the word of God in front of you or here this morning, this is God's perfect, good, and acceptable will. And so as you turn back to to Mark, that statement is so important. They need teaching. (laughs) They need teaching just like you and I do. Notice also that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And so he's teaching his disciples and telling them. It's an ongoing teaching. I think it's as they walk along the way here. But he says the Son of Man is to be delivered. That's a really sweet term, the Son of Man. Why doesn't he call himself the Son of God here? He is the Son of God. He's equal with God, right? In the beginning was the Word. 
The word was with God and the word was God. And so he's fully God. Why doesn't he call himself the son of God here? Why is it so important that he calls himself the son of man at this point? Well, notice what he's about to do. The Bible says in, in verse 31 that the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. How are you going to kill God? You can't kill God. And so the beauty of this text reminds us that Jesus has become the Son of Man. That in his infinite wisdom, in the infinite plan of God, the almighty Son of God, the almighty God uh, and fully God, the, the, the second being, as we, we would say, the, of the Trinity, um, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, comes to earth, adds flesh to himself in order to be an offering for us. Look at the, listen to this verse, Hebrews chapter 10, 4 and 5. Here's why he becomes the son of man. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let me say it this way. It's impossible for you to go to church, give money, and get saved. Does that help you a little bit in that translation? It's impossible to be born in a Christian family to live by the Ten Commandments and get to heaven. See, God knows us. The law was not set up to save you. The law was set up to drive you to sin and to drive you to see your sin and know a perfect God. And so he says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, Christ, comes into the world, he says, as he's speaking to his father, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That's the son of man. The greatest things Jesus ever did for us is added humanity to himself. So he could die for you. And in this text is about humility. It's about serving one another. Is there a greater example than the almighty creator God who spoke existence, creation into existence, as we heard from Josh today, who names the stars he created to add flesh so sinful men could kill him in order to be a sacrifice for us? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And this is what he's trying to teach them. Notice it says to be delivered over. Paradidomai is the word. It's in a present passive. It's a fascinating thought here, meaning this is Jesus' plan. He has no other plan. He is on the present road to this deliverance. He is going to be delivered. And it's passive because he's surrendering to his father's plan. This is what the father laid down. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, for he was foreknown, that's Jesus, before the foundations of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. He's going to be delivered. They had no idea who they were putting on the cross, did they? This is why the Bible records he could have called these legions of angels. He had all authority given to him. And yet, here he is. The greatest of all has become the servant of all. And the 12 are talking about, hmm, where am I going to sit? Right hand, left hand, I'm greater than you are. And hear the Lord of glory. I love Acts chapter 23. This is the definite plan of God. This man, Jesus Christ, delivered over, here's the word again, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. This is no accident. Jesus is headed for the cross just like the Father planned Peter goes on to say in that great sermon, but you nailed him to, to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in this text. Now think about this. Go, go a little farther with me. Think about this instrument of death here. He says, he says in this text, I'm going to be delivered over into the hands of men and they will kill me. Guess who they are? Well, it's a long list, but there's one of them walking with them right now. Isn't that astounding? I sat and contemplated that for a while this week. I thought, Lord, Judas is right there. This man is going to betray you for the price of a slave. He's going to hand you over to godless men. They're going to drive nails into you and hang you on a cross. And he's sitting here listening to this. He wasn't alone, though, right? The Jews cried, crucify him. The Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. The Jewish leaders were were behind all of this. They hated Jesus. They did not want to surrender their allegiance and their power over to Jesus. Pilate and the Romans had their hands in it. And yet, as we sing a great song here, our mocking voices come out among the crowd. So the guilt is to be spread wide, isn't it? And yet, Judas is there. The Bible calls him the son of perdition. And Christ clearly sees into his heart at this moment. I I thought about this and thinking about these men and they're walking along and Jesus is telling them, look, I have to be delivered over. I'm being handed over. My father is handing me over to these men. And, and, And did he make eye contact with him? Was this already in his heart? Was this sin starting to form? Was Christ seeing this sin in his heart? Was his mind starting to store of of how I can gain financially from this situation? And yet all the way through to the bitter end, Christ treats him with nothing but respect. And he does hand him over. And Judas would have him killed. And that sin led to death and that was the goal. For Jesus to die for us. But Jesus tells the disciples he will be killed. Notice this. He will be killed. That's the wages of sin, right? The wages of sin is death, right? Romans 3.23. We quote that verse. Um, The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is the wages of sin is death. So our wages caused his death. And so he says, I must die. But notice he doesn't leave it there. He's given the complete gospel here, isn't he? And they will kill me. And when he has been killed, as he speaks of himself in the third person there, he will rise three days later. I love this portion because we don't, we don't have a gospel that has a dead Jesus. We don't have crosses with Jesus' hanging on them. I, I think that's an offense to a God who set a complete plan up. The plan wasn't just to have his son die for our sins. His his plan was to raise him from the dead and give us new life. New life is the key to this. He has to die so we can live. And so Jesus incorporates this into the message of the gospel. And any message without the resurrection is an incomplete message. Notice he says he will rise three days later. And Christ's resurrection is that guarantee, I want you to think about this, of both the physical and the spiritual new life that you and I have. We have new life. We belong to the Lord. Hebrews goes so far to say in so many words that you and I, because Christ beat death and came out of the grave, we will never see the second death. It's a phenomenal statement. 
You know what the second death is? It's eternal death in hell. It's dying forever without able to die. It's all the wages of sin put upon you with with no recourse, no sacrifice in your place. It is the worst possible thing that can happen to any man, woman, or child, the second death. Christ's resurrection beats that. It's astounding. It never gets old, does it? I will never see the second death because Christ died for me. Isn't that beautiful? How many funerals and memorial services have we done here through the years? And those believers, those believers that we have said goodbye to are with the Lord and they never see the second death. Some of us will die this first death. We, this life may run out before the Lord returns. We may, that may run out. And we may run that course. But we'll never see that second death because Jesus beats death through the resurrection. And he's telling them this. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in the newness of life. Oh, friend, if you know Jesus Christ, our life is new. And this is what he's trying to teach them. He says he will rise. It's an interesting word, and it's a, it's a future tense. It's a future middle tense. And what that means, and simply what that means, is, is Jesus says, I'm going to have a part of my own resurrection. And when you study the resurrection, the Father raises Jesus from the dead. The Spirit delivers him from death. And Christ raises himself from the death. All three members of the Trinity are part of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and you know, we read this in English, but as these men are hearing this, they're, they're trying to work through this. Jesus says he's going to raise himself from the dead. We've seen, him, he, we've seen him raise other people from the dead. We saw the Lazarus. We, we, they're going to see Lazarus. They've seen the little boy. They've seen some other, uh, the little girl that was, was dead. They've seen Jesus raised, but now he's saying, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. And yet, all they can do is be consumed with themselves. I'm going to take you to two passages really clearly. As you think through the gospel, these two passages uh, I love dearly. Look, look up with me at 2 Timothy chapter 1. See, he's teaching them this. And, and these apostles are going to go on and teach the church these truths. And, and you and I are going to read these in the inspired word of God. And we're going to teach our children these truths. And we're going to teach our neighbors these truths. These truths are unchanging. And they last forever. And this is what the church continues to teach. Look what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Paul's warned Timothy not to be caught up in the, the weakness of timidity. It's the difference between humility and timidity. Timidity is, a, well, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm scared. Uh, it's a very human fear. It's a, uh, almost the fact that, well, I don't want to make a fool of myself, so I'm not going to do anything. Paul says, no, no, that's not from God. He's given you power and love and discipline And so in verse 8, now listen to the powerful gospel message here. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. If I'm willing to go to chains for this, don't be ashamed of that. Then he says with this, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, now, friends, if I told you that we're going to walk out that door and there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to put us through some real suffering 
if we confess Jesus as Lord, how many are going out that door and how many are going out that one? I mean, he's, he's telling Timothy, don't, don't be ashamed. Join with me. The gospel's worth suffering for. It is the very power of God. Now notice he explains this a little bit in verse 9. Who has saved us? And that phrase is very important here. Who has saved us? You go, well, wait a minute. I, I walked an aisle. I said a prayer. I, I did those things. No, I didn't save you. No one's, been ra- no one's been saved by raising a hand. An aisle doesn't save you. Even a prayer does not save you. God saves you. God transforms your mind and your heart. And notice Paul's reminding Timothy, look, this power is that the God saved you. This is not something done on your own. If it was something done on your own, you should be afraid. Because if you did it on your own, you could lose it on your own. So he's saying, walk in the power and newness of life and love and discipline. Don't be ashamed of this testimony. God saved you. And look what else he does. He's called us with a holy calling. Meaning God's calling to us is so perfect. It is without stain or blemish. He chose you from the foundations of the world. You could not escape him. And it's a perfect salvation. It's holy. It's absent of evil. You could never do that on your own. That's the beauty of salvation. See, that's why we, particularly those who hold to a a whole counsel of God's word, we teach this because anything else is a marred salvation. It has to be God who does it all. Otherwise, the sinner gets involved in it. And so he says, listen, Timothy, God saved you. He's called you with a holy calling. It's without sin. It's a perfect salvation that he's called you out of the world. Notice this, not according to your works. Because if it's according to your works, you're going to stand before him and you're going to tell him why you were there. See, this is a beautiful text. I didn't have anything to do with this. (laughs) This is something alien to me, as Luther said. This is outside of me. This is something done to me. God came and rescued me. He called me out of this. See, this is what he's teaching them. This is this teaching, why he's wanting to understand this so they can preach this later. Notice he did this, but according to his own purpose. Now think with me, friend. God had a purpose to save you. I think, I mean, there's a lot going on in the universe, isn't there? You got planets and stars and gravity. You got food that needs to grow and water that needs to fall out of the sky. You got a lot of things going on, God. You purposed me? You, in your infinite plan before the foundations of the world, purposed to save me? Does that make you want to worship or make you want to run? I hope it makes you want to worship. Because God has set a target on us. He's after us. He loves us. You notice he goes on to tell young Timothy this, for, according to his own purpose, and grace. He's displaying grace so much that Peter says that the angels long to look into this type of grace. It's an amazing thing to them that he would purpose such grace into such sinners. And then in and, and this verse just caps this, which was granted us in Christ Jesus. So that word granted, it's in a passive. It means it's done to us. 
This, this is what... This is the, the, the great argument that Jesus is trying to squelch there of this greatness of man. He's trying to draw them to what he's about to do. He's trying to draw them to their life message, what they're going to preach for the rest of their life, what they're going to die for. He's trying to draw them to this in Mark chapter 9. He wants them to see that. 1 Corinthians, on your way back to Mark, just stop at 1 Corinthians real quick on the way back. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. doing a little bit of discipling this morning as we look at this because I want you to be able to take people to verses. I want you to be able to know these verses yourself and share them with your loved ones. Paul basically gives this beautiful outline in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which, was, which I've preached to you, which, I also, which also you received, in which also you stand. I want you to know this gospel. I've preached it to you, you've received it, and you stand in it. So Scott, why are you rehearsing the gospel with us again? Well, that's what Paul does. Brothers, I, I, I want to preach this to you. I want you to receive it, and I want you to stand in it. Verse 2, by which you were saved. This is the gospel by which you are saved. If you hold fast the word which you preach, that's the litmus test. Did, did, did God really save me? Then, then I do hold on. If, if I saved myself, you're probably going to fall away. Unless you believed in vain. Now look what he does. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as first importance. There's nothing greater than this. This is the greatest message of all, what he's saying. I deliver to you of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Isn't that beautiful? Do you ever have doubts that maybe go through your mind? Well, is this really true? Did God really accept the sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf? Have you ever thought in your heart, are my sins really forgiven? See, the Bible's telling us here, I deliver to you of first importance what I also receive. This is the message, this is the revelation that the Lord gave him, exactly what the Old Testament had taught, exactly what Jesus Christ had taught, that Christ was going to be a substitute for our sins. He taught it all the way from Genesis 3.15 when, when there would be one, a seed that would come and crush the head. There would be a substitutional death. It's taught all the way through the Bible. It's the redemptive plan of God seen all the way from Genesis to the cross. And Paul says, I preach to you what I've been told. And notice, he doesn't leave there, verse 4, and that he was buried. That's a real important little phrase. Because if Jesus really didn't die, you're really not forgiven. He died. We sang that this morning. They laid his body with tear-drenched, his tear-drenched body in the tomb. His men who followed Christ buried him there. The women followed them to him to the tomb. He was buried. He died. He died in our place. But then the Bible says that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. See, this is a gospel, this is a great verse. This is a verse you should commit to memory. Because here you can see and understand. But Jesus is trying to lead his disciples to understand. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to deliver me over. Men are going to kill me. I will be buried. And I will raise again in three days. This is the message we believe. Second thought as you turn your way back 
to Mark chapter 9. The greatest detractor of the gospel is pride. The greatest detractor of the gospel is pride. Notice in verse 32, but they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him. A verb kind of implies the idea that there was kind of an ongoing misunderstanding or, or not grasping it. They, they were basically agnostic or doubtful in the subject of his death and resurrection. They, they weren't there yet. They, they're, they're, they're so lost in some other arguments that are going on, they can't quite see this. Remember in verse 9 and 10, just look back across the page, verse 9 and 10, when they came off the mountain, um, he ordered them not to tell any about things that he, anybody about what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And verse 10 says that they seized upon the statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They did not get this. And there's a reason we don't get the Gospels, a reason we don't understand it, because often our pride's in the way. And so, as you see, they're consumed more with the Messiah's reign and their position than they are with what it takes to ever see the kingdom of God. And that's so true today. Well, I want to go to heaven. But I don't want to follow some Christ. I don't want to bend the knee to him. They are majoring on the minors. While God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is telling them to major on the majors. This is the gospel. And this is why they're afraid to ask him, I think. I think they're, they're afraid to ask about the self-proclaimed death and resurrection. Maybe because maybe last time Peter spoke up, if you remember this, Peter said, Lord, no, far be it that you be killed. And, and Jesus said what to him? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> maybe they said, well, last time somebody asked, that would happen. But, but again, remember, Peter was not... He was not coming to the will of God. He was coming to his own will. Jesus himself said, you're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like God. You're not thinking about God's will. You're thinking like a man. And I think this is the case here as well. Is the gospel inconvenient to us? Is it? I think so many Christians, well, yeah, I prayed a prayer back in 1976. Yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. But, you know, I'm out here living, man. I got a life. I got a mortgage. I got car payments, I got kids, I got, I got college, and I got all this stuff. See, it's so easy to go buy the main thing. This is what drives our life. For Christians that live a life without the gospel, woven into every fabric of their life, they become joyless. They become dutiful. And so we fall into the trap of duty versus delight. Right? I, I, don't, you know, I, I think I can speak for many of you. We don't want to be just dutiful Christians. Well, why do you go to church? Well, because that's what Christians do. It's my duty. The Christian life is about delight. It's about new life. It's about joy in Christ. Yes, there's difficulties. Yes, we deal with sin. Yes, things happen in our families and our hearts are often broken. But we have new life. We know at the end we'll be with our Savior. So we grasp onto the gospel. Notice in verse 33, they came to Capernaum. And when they'd come into the house, he began to question them. They're back to the original headquarters, probably Peter's family house. Most likely, this is where Peter's mother-in-law was healed. It's where Jesus had taught them before. This is where the crowds pressed in before. But they're in here now in silence. And I think it's here where Jesus is entering this conversation to ask them the most important question. What were you discussing along the way? 
See, the time frame suggests that they may not have wanted to divulge this information, right? Verse 34, notice what happens. It says, but they kept silent. Hmm. Matthew records that they were arguing about who was the greatest on the trip. Jesus has said, hey, what were you guys talking about? What were you discussing? Matthew says, we were arguing about it. Who is the greatest? So when Jesus asked them this question, it seems they felt ashamed. Uh, maybe, maybe they understood the master has discovered their jealous rivalry. In reality, Christ is unearthing their hearts, isn't he? I thought, well, what spurred this? I was, I was looking at this text thinking about what spurred maybe this problem in this greatest, who's greatest. Why would you talk about that when you've been with Jesus for these two and a half years? Well, maybe Peter and James and John came off the mountain and said, hey, we got to go on the mountain, you didn't. Uh, it sounds like something men would do, right? My team won, yours lost. I don't know. But, but something spurred this. Maybe it's their religious upbringing. Maybe they're, they're, you remember, these men are probably trained in rabbinical schools or, or at least around the rabbis, around the Jewish hierarchy that they saw all the time. They, have, they had witnessed that, and though Jesus had denounced that, though Jesus had nothing to do with those religious rulers and their, the way they were hurting the people and not shepherding the people, maybe that rubbed off on them. And maybe they began to think, well, if I can get this position, maybe if I'm greater than you, you can see how this easily breaks out with sinful people. But one would think that the pronouncement of Jesus' death and the thoughts of a coming kingdom would be abandoned when you heard that he was going to die. You would think that they would come there, but that was not the case. Notice the power of pride and its failure to be moved by the gospel. Jesus just says, look, I'm going to be delivered to the hands of, of these wicked men, and they're going to kill me, and I will be killed. And then he asks them this simple question, what were you discussing? And they can't, they're not moved by the gospel to say, oh, God. Lord, we're so sorry. Here you're telling us that you're going to die for us. You're you're going to this cross in a sense. They may not have understood that whole thing, but they know he's telling them repeatedly, I'm going to die. Wouldn't you have said, oh, man, we we had a stupid argument going on about who was greatest. Would you forgive us, Lord? But see, pride is not that way. Pride captures our hearts. It puts blinders on us. We automatically go into defense mode, or in this case, they go into quiet mode. And yet Jesus wants to expose it. Notice what he does next, verse 35. Sitting down, he called the 12. Sitting down, he calls the 12. And so Jesus sits down in this house, probably most likely Peter's family house could be, just as a teacher would do and desiring to convey great truth. Notice he calls the 12 to himself. It implies that they weren't together. Anybody been in a family Thanksgiving and everybody's in separate rooms because they don't get along? These Yehus have been arguing for the last two or three days who's the greatest, and they don't like each other, maybe. And they're all spread out through the house, so Jesus, what does he do? He loves to bring people together. He loves them to hear the gospel, so he, he gathers them together. You can see it in the verse. He sits down and he calls them and says, get over here, we need to talk. Their selfishness had caused division. 
And once Jesus has them positioned in front of him, he begins to discuss with them what he had often repeat. Mark chapter 10, we'll see this theme again. Matthew chapter 23, Luke 22, just days and even hours before his death, he's going to talk about who is the greatest in the kingdom and how you become great. And so true greatness does not consist in the elevation of yourself over another, is what Jesus is going to teach them. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the King of glory. But when we, he or she, whoever's in this room, whoever hearing this message, when we immerse ourselves in the needs of others, when we begin to be gospel-driven, we become to be like Christ in that area. He came to give himself as a ransom to serve others. Instead, the disciples were filled with this need to be served it's one of the greatest struggles of the church right now the church is struggling with with people that just want to come and be served there's a book recently written on um, i'm a member of a church and the book's premise is that most people come and they think they're part of a country club i come there People take care of my children. People do this for me. They do this for me. And when they don't do it the way I want, I go to the next one. Not, not with that attitude of serving. Jesus said, the king of glory, the son of man, the son of God, the, the triune God takes flesh on and comes to the world. Here in, in, in Mark ten forty five says he came to serve. And yet arguments go on and on why can't I do this and why why isn't somebody doing this for me see there can be no greater role of a servant led by the gospel to live a gospel life notice the verse the end of verse 35 he says this if anyone wants to be first (laughs) could you imagine the heads that just went down right when he said that they never answered him remember they didn't tell him what they were taught he was talking about but does he know absolutely he knows knows exactly what they were talking about so he brings it up well you don't want to talk about it let me bring it up if anyone wants to be first how many of us want to be first Disneyland (laughs) we'll camp in the parking lot so we can be the first ones in the gate potlucks pushing old people over it's just part of our fallen nature we want to be first If anyone wants to be first, he said, he shall be last of all. And notice this little word and here for the text. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So I don't know how to be last of all. That's a good question. How how do you be last? You just wait for everybody to go through a potluck? I don't think this is a verse about going through a potluck. The way you be last so that you may be first is you serve. And when the serving bug grabs you, when, you, when the gospel's got you in such a way and you have this, this internal desire now that God has placed there and you've obeyed him and you start to serve people, it is the most freeing, satisfying, first place type of thinking that'll ever hit you. Because you finally got to the point where you let the gospel start pushing back your flesh and you begin desire to serve somebody. Who can I serve today? 
Who can I give my chair to? Who can I see who needs a ride home? Who, who can I minister to? Who's in the hospital I can go call on? I mean, it's just a list of people going through something. Well, I'm going through something. Well, maybe go serve someone. It might help lift your spirit. See, Jesus is trying to teach them. Imagine apostles going out to start the church and all they're thinking about who's who is greatest. You know what kind of church we would have? Well, they're out there. Who's the greatest? You got all these lists of people and all these mainline churches. Paul, Paul knew this. And he said in, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I give it all up. Tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous for the law, first among all those equals, I give it all up for the sake of knowing Christ. See, that's the idea here. And that's what Jesus is trying to bring forward. Oh, serve. Let the gospel drive your service. And this is a lesson these men would learn. Believe me, they learned it. And you read the book of Acts, these men suffer greatly. They put Christ first. They put, they put the gospel before anything else and they die for it. What a beautiful lesson. Last thought, the true greatness of humility in the gospel. Look at verses 36 and following. Taking a child, he set him before them and taking him into his arms he said to them whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me and whoever receives me does not receive me but him that's the father who sent me so jesus wants to drive this point home with these future church planners right he wants them to grasp this and he wants his disciples to understand the power of humility while living for the gospel. So in their midst, he, Jesus takes a child and he places the child what seems to be in the center of the disciples. These big, tall, grown men, probably beards and long flowing gowns and so forth, the way they dress in the ancient world. And he puts a little child right in the middle of them who's probably looking like this. <laughs> it's quite possible it might have been one of Peter's children. Think about that. He's in his home, it could have been. And with the disciples looking on, as the verse says, Jesus took him in his arms. Uh, the phrase literally speaks of cradling, holding a child in the crook of your arm is the verb that's used there. And so he takes this child and he's holding it in his arm, again, maybe one of Peter's own children. And maybe Peter was part of this conversation about who was greatest. And now the Lord's sitting with one of his children, looking at them as they stood, now in a presence, maybe in a semi-circle, looking on to the Lord Jesus Christ, these large grown men. And Jesus begins to teach them. I wonder if they were ashamed. I wonder what they thought of that scene. Verse 37, Jesus says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. See, the child now becomes the analogy of the believer. He's not just talking about being kind to children. We certainly are kind to children, all children as Christians. But he's now talking about believers here. The child becomes the analogy of other believers the profound reality of Jesus' statement reveals that how Christians treat one another is how you treat Christ. Isn't that what the text says? Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Did you ever think about that? Is there any problems between brothers and sisters in this congregation? I don't know. 
Do you have a problem with another Christian that you have not gone and talked with him or her about it? You know, wait, and, and, and maybe you fell into the sin of gossip or whatever it may be. The Bible's saying as Jesus is holding this child and they've been conversing and arguing with each other and treating each other poorly, he's saying the way you treat each other is how you're going to treat me as he holds maybe Peter's son or daughter in his arms. It's profound. To reject these believers and not serve them would be to reject Christ himself. Who are you serving in here? We want to be a church that serves. We just want to serve one another. There's so many things to do. We have a booklet. We're talking about it this week. There's so many things in that booklet of just ministries you can be involved with. But having the true heart to serve. And I think that happens the minute you drive onto the property. In fact, it happens before that when you wake up on a Sunday morning. Lord, I, I don't want to be a taker. Help me go to church and, and give and receive and, and be a part of this family that's there. Because how we treat one another is how we treat Christ. And notice he goes on, and to receive Christ is to receive the eternal Father in whose name he came. So Jesus says, if it's not enough to treat me that way, you'll treat my Father that way. Boy, is he, is he after them. I, I mean, I, I got a feeling they came out like they'd been in the woodshed. Like, wow, that conversation did not end the way we thought it would. Whether it would be Christ coming physical kingdom or the spiritual kingdom that all believers find themselves in believers should be willing to serve one another thus defining greatness see jesus is defining greatness by the way we serve one another and he defined it through the strength of the gospel i'm going to be killed i'm going to be buried i'm going to be rose from the dead that is the gospel that is your motivation to serve one another in the 1970s, a little Maranatha song came out. Do you remember this? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. That's, we sang that song. I grew up singing that song. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. And he's, he's teaching that. That song, Maranatha wrote that right out of this. So in essence, Jesus is answering the question, you want to know who's going to be great? Servants. Those who look at my lambs, those who see my lambs, see my flock, and they don't bring harm to them. And in fact, totally the opposite. Instead of bringing harm or bringing false teaching or, or attacking each other, you come and you serve one another. That's how I would want you to do this. I think Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen relates this. I looked at this passage several different times and here as Isaiah is winding up this text and looking forward to a coming kingdom of God where he will rule in righteousness he says this as he talks about those who care for the weak he talks about God how God cares for the weak he says this in Isaiah 57:15 for this for this is what the high and exalted one says this is God the father the one who rules forever, whose name is holy. Wow, what a title just to tell us what God's going to say, right? Quote, I, speaking of God, dwell in an exalted holy place, but also with the discouraged and the humiliated in order to cheer up the humiliated and to encourage the discouraged. Man, I love that verse. 
I, God, holy and lifted up, exalted above all. You know where I remain? I remain with the discouraged in, the, in those who have been humiliated. You want to find me? That's where I'm at. <laughs> what a statement. The hierarchy said, well, you know, we got God. If you just follow us, give us your money, do all this, we'll get you to God. God says, no, I'm the exalted one. I'm with the discouraged. I'm with the faint of heart. I'm with those. So if you want to find me and serve me, go serve them. And I think this is what Jesus is teaching. So true greatness comes through humility. And it's only produced by the gospel. And without the gospel, you will treat your spouse poorly. Your marriage will struggle. Without the gospel, it'll be very difficult to parent in this age. Without the gospel, your children will not respond well to you. Without the gospel, the me-centered church gets stronger and stronger. Without the gospel, there's an unwelcoming spirit in churches where people don't feel welcome when they come to a new church or move to a new area. Without the gospel, there's no prayer. Prayerless churches often are connected to a, godless, uh, a gospelless church. Without the gospel, there's no service. So those in need get overlooked. The place of position is reserved for those with money or those with prestige. Without the gospel, service doesn't happen. Those who are struggling or going through difficult areas are bypassed. But finally, I would entreat us all to ask the Lord to give you a deep love for the gospel so you'll have a deep love for those around you. Let me say that one more time. Ask God to give you a deep love for the gospel. A deep love for the gospel is loving what God loves. Hating what he hates. Putting pride on the back burner. Thinking of others before you think of yourself. The gospel will do that. Don't you want to be that person? As I said it this week, I cried out several times. I said, Lord, I want to be this person. Help me love the gospel. Help me love it on Sunday morning as well as Monday morning. Because Monday's coming. And all of its problems are just hours away. Will you love the gospel tomorrow? Will you love the gospel Wednesday afternoon? Thursday at the doctor's? And in that difficult situation with your spouse, will you love the gospel? Amen? Amen? Father, what an amazing set of events as you lead your disciples, these men who will soon preach the gospel and the explosion of the early church will take place. And there's a devil among them, the Bible says. They're, they're consumed with who's the greatest, who's going to lead the charge who's going to be on the right and left hand they're consumed with very human prideful things lord you are you are teaching them to be consumed with serving and lord there's a lot of good service that goes on there's organizations that serve the homeless they serve people in need but that's not what you're talking about here you're talking about a gospel driven service that affects every area of our life Husbands serving their wives. Wives serving their husbands. Serving our children and children serving their parents. 
church members serving one another. A church that serves and is welcoming to those who come in our doors. You're talking about something so much greater, Lord. It's a gospel-driven service. So, Lord, give us a passionate love for your gospel. Help us to bend the knee when our pride seems strong. Help us to repent and turn. And, Lord, there will be great joy in our lives because of those things, Lord. Please help us. We want to be a church that loves the gospel and serves one another. Please help us, Lord, get there. In Jesus' name, amen.